Hello, everyone. Welcome to BizChat Ohio, the podcast bringing you big ideas for small businesses. Throughout this series, we hope to bring the best of small business news and industry trends from Ohio's thought leaders. I'm your host, Kathy Walsh, Director of the Small Business Development Center at Lakeland Community College, and I'm joined by my co-host and soul sister, Gretchen Skoke DeSanto, Director of Lakeland Community College's Entrepreneurship Center and Business Advisor for the Ohio Small Business Development Center. Hello, Gretchen. Uh, hello, Kathy. Hello, everyone. So in our roles at the Ohio Small Business Development Center, uh, which is also known as the SBDC, if you've heard that out there, uh, Kathy and I often find that our business clients are not aware of the safeguards they should be taking in order to prevent fraud at their businesses. We've unfortunately seen some terrible situations where employees have stolen thousands of dollars from small businesses. I actually um, have a gentleman who does a lot of work at my house. We were, I was just talking to him the other day about something like this, and he was telling me how uh, a lady that had worked with him for like 15 years that he significantly trusted ended up stealing $250,000 from him. So these stories are everywhere and um, we want to shine a light on this business problem. Um, so our special guest today is an expert in helping to protect small businesses from fraud schemes. Yeah, so today we are joined by Frank Saponsik from Markham's Valuation, Forensic, and Litigation Services Group, which concentrates on fraud and embezzlement. Frank has investigated and managed multi-million dollar forensic engagements. In his role, he helps businesses investigate payroll, cash receipts, billing, cash disbursements, and expense reimbursement schemes. He regularly assists clients in evaluating their internal controls to help minimize their likelihood of becoming a victim of a financial crime. And Mr. Saponsik has written several articles on fraud, forensic accounting, and identity theft, and is a frequent speaker through Ohio, throughout Ohio on these subjects. So Frank, we wanna welcome you to BizChat Ohio, and we're glad that you're with us today. Thank you so much, Kathy and Gretchen, for the opportunity. Sure. Um, so. Like Gretchen said, um, this topic is also near and dear to me as well as I started my career in banking and unfortunately saw many instances of fraud and embezzlement, um, both by my customers' employees and by, unfortunately, our own employees. And I was always struck by some of these people who were found guilty uh, of embezzlement or fraud. Uh, sometimes they were typically the, the kindest and most trustworthy employees that I could have identified. and. Sometimes they fell into financial difficulties. Sometimes it was other things that motivated them, but I was just shocked at, at some of the people who uh, engaged in this behavior. And I know we'll talk about some of those misconceptions later in the podcast, but I just wanna say that that's why this topic is so important to protect not only yourself, but your employees from doing something that, will, that can hurt them. Um, but Frank, can you start out by sharing some of your background and your current role at Markham? Sure. I've uh... For those listening, Skoda Minotti um, was merged into Markham in, in uh, December of 2019. So some people may not be familiar with the Markham name, at least in the Cleveland market. Uh, so if you know the name Skoda Minotti, uh, that's who Markham is in Cleveland. Um, I began my career with uh, Skoda Minotti in 1994. Prior to that, I was with a uh, local CPA firm in Independence for about a dozen years. And while there, I, I was always interested in the area of forensic work and, and wanted to get into that line of work because I thought it was challenging. I thought it was interesting as opposed to financial statements and tax returns. Uh, and in 1994, um, 
Greg Skoda uh, gave me the opportunity to uh, come to, to Skoda Minotti, uh, begin the litigation support practice group that we have. Um, and today we, we have a staff of seven, which is uh, one of the larger forensic groups and valuation uh, groups in the Cleveland marketplace. And as a result of that and the established uh, relationships that we have with uh, many of the reputable attorneys in the Cleveland market, uh, the reputation that we have, it is really the, the group has blossomed and is one of the go-to uh, firms in, in Cleveland with regard to litigation support, forensic and valuation services. So it, it's really been a, a fantastic ride here. Um, I started off as a supervisor. I'm now a partner in charge of forensics. Uh, so it has enabled me to grow as a person and to kind of give you the opportunity to do what you want to do with your career as opposed to, you know, punching a clock on a nine to five job. I mean, I'm really a, I'm passionate about it. I love what I do. And and sometimes that's kind of cynical considering that the work that I'm doing is I'm investigating people that lie, cheat, and steal. So those people may not be appreciative of the art that I'm performing, but you know, whoever is usually retaining us, whether it's an attorney, a private company, or law enforcement or a prosecutor's office, you know, they're they're usually well served and at the end of the day, a satisfied customer. Excellent. Thanks, Frank. So, you know, some surveys are out there report that 80% of businesses are the victim of fraud each year. And that seems really high. You know, do you think this business problem is overblown? Um, or do you think in your experience, those surveys are accurate and that it's that big of a problem? It is, it is a problem. I, I don't know if 80% is an accurate number. The, the problem with financial crimes is that there really isn't a a good data collection service that the the cases are reported to. Usually, a lot of those serve those those surveys are predicated based on criminal cases. And what I've learned is that half of the half of the cases that I've worked, or even national studies, will show that only half of the forensic cases actually turn criminal. Uh, many of them are civil, as a result of the the victim. Let's just say the owner or the not for profit. They really want to fire the person if they haven't been fired and be made whole, get their money back and go on their way. Uh, they don't want the negative exposure that a criminal case may provide to that entity as a result of, oh my gosh, this company lost a million dollars. Boy, they got really poor internal controls. I can't believe that that happened there. Um, not to mention the time that a criminal case may take away from the company actually being profitable uh, through depositions and attending trials and et, et cetera. So most of the cases don't go criminal. Um, and the fact that there isn't a reporting mechanism, I'm not gonna say that the 80% may be high. I mean, I've seen studies that show 75% of employees steal. Now, it doesn't mean that they steal all the time, they may steal once, um, but it, it, it is a problem, and then I think, unfortunately, in our society um, and the business climate, despite all the exposure and coverage and, and enhancement of forensic stories and, and theft cases, a lot of people still believe that it can't happen to them. Oh, isn't that the truth? It's not going to be me. It's somebody else's business. That won't happen to yeah. me. Yeah, it's, it's a sad revelation. So what do you think the most prevalent fraud or embezzlement schemes are out there right now? What have you seen lately that 
people are falling well, prey to. The, the two of the bigger ones that, that we've seen reoccurring uh, in the past couple of years, and, and when I say the past couple of years, 2020, as a result of the, the disruption that many businesses faced and having their employees work remotely, um, I, I'm excluding 2020 just because of, of what you've seen in 2020, uh, if employees are working remotely, you're dealing more with electronic data. Uh, you don't have the actual uh, invoice. You've got an electronic image. You don't have the actual check. You're dealing with a uh, maybe a wire transfer or uh, you know some other way of, of making the payment to the customer that the person can't fraud. You know, fortunately, uh, for, fraud forge a check as easy as if they had the paper copy in their hand. Absent that, uh, what we've seen prior to that was a significant increase in credit card and expense report fraud, um, and also a increase of fraud involving what I'll call EFT, or electronic fund transfer transactions, wire transfers, uh, ATMs uh, transactions that are tied to corporate accounts, people's personal credit cards that are tied to corporate accounts, um, wire transfers from a corporate or a business account to a personal account or a shell company that the, the, the fraudster might have set up themselves. Um, it, it's, it was more electronic in nature because you don't have as many substantiating documents that could uh, bring to light to a business owner or an executive director a fraudulent transaction. If you can hide the bank statement that would reflect all of these electronic transactions, then no one's ever gonna know that the tr that, that fraudulent transaction occurred. And, and the other thing with regard to credit card and expense reports, once again, somebody isn't looking over the shoulder of the employee, and as a result, the employee is taking liberty with either one, opening up completely a fraudulent credit card, usually, usually in the same name of uh, a, uh, let's say that, that the company has a ABC credit card. You'll see that the employee will also have a ABC credit card uh, so that when the disbursement goes through on the books, oh, well, I know that I have a credit card with ABC company. It's no big deal. It doesn't click on them that there's more than one transaction a month to the ABC credit card. Um, and as a result of that, uh, you know, the person's obviously financially, personally financially benefiting as a result of the fraud. The other one is where the executive, uh, other people in the company have access to the corporate credit card, but the person whose name the corporate credit card in is never reviewing the transactions on that corporate credit card. And while credit card and expense, re, you know, expense report fraud are traditionally not the largest types of frauds that companies are affected by, you know, because financial statement frauds are by far the largest and, you know, fraudulent payments as far as withdrawals to an individual or, or diversions are, you know, the largest ones that we have seen. Um, credit card and expense reimbursement frauds can total up. Where in, in the past, you know, we've worked a couple of cases that have exceeded a million dollars of losses and, you know, they may have accumulated over, you know, five, 10 years, 15 years, but, you know, and over time that number adds up. And so it's, it's a number that businesses should be aware of, the type of fraud that businesses should be aware of, and that's often overlooked. So I think that because of the, the dollar amount of fraud being lesser, that 
people just don't have their the radar up to, to be looking for it. Interesting. Thanks. So what are one or two safeguards that businesses can use to protect their organizations and employees from the types of fraud that you just mentioned? And I tell you, I could I could probably spend an hour talking talking on the subject alone. And it's hard to pick out two. You know, I'll throw out the first one, which is probably the most obvious or should be the most obvious to every business owner. And that's to have good internal controls. Um, you need checks and balances. You need proper safeguards. And what we've seen with a lot of smaller businesses is that, you know, you may have an owner of a company. You may have a bookkeeper. I'm going to use the word controller or a degree accountant, but you got a bookkeeper and that's it. Well, that one person has control over absolutely every financial aspect of that business. And as a result, there are very limited internal controls, especially if the if the business owner is out there making money, working jobs, whatever it may be, they trust that person. And in the world of fraud, fraud by definition is a violation of trust. So once you trust that person, that's the big that's the first biggest mistake that people make is that they completely trust them. The second one is that they're completely hands off. And if they're completely hands off, and you have a one person accounting department, there are no internal controls. So in, in you have to work controls in to some degree, whether it's the business owner looking over that person's shoulder, whether it's an outside person, uh, their accountant, a CPA, someone like myself that just comes in and provides a level of, I'm not gonna say security, but oversight that the person that is writing the checks, making the deposits, you know, knows that, all right, someone else is gonna look at this. And that's a deterrent in itself. So, you know, proper internal controls is important, is, is the most important thing because every fraud occurs as a result of some kind of a breakdown in internal controls. The second one, and this is kind of common sense, but it, it's, it's a huge, really a misstep that many businesses take, especially in this day and age right now where there is such a demand for uh, people in the marketplace, whether it's, uh, you know, a, a, a fast food worker or whether it's a bookkeeper or an accountant, that there just aren't enough people to service the demand that people will just go ahead and hire somebody without checking their background. And that is a, a fatal mistake because out of desperation of trying to find somebody now, because I need a bookkeeper in here, I have to do my billing, I have to write checks. Oh, this person comes to me, you know, and they may have a really a nice resume, they just left off the fact that they were convicted for embezzlement in the last employer and just gotten out of prison, whatever it may be, they don't check it because the person was so convincing in the in the telephone interview, even if they may have done a face-to-face. -face. And what happens, that person recognizes because they're a, I don't use the word professional fraudster, recognize that, oh my gosh, after a month, I realized that the owner of the company isn't looking at financial statements, he's not looking at the checkbook, I'm getting all the bank statements, Man, there is no internal control here whatsoever. What, what, what happens right off, right off the bat is that you've got people that are stealing. And, and it's not uncommon that once a, a person with criminal intent is, understands the internal controls, understands the weaknesses, then it's really up to them to, what I would say, test the system, maybe run a few fraudulent transactions through. And then once those don't get caught, because those can always be explained as, oh, I forgot I had to borrow 50 bucks to, you know, to get gas or I had to do something. Um, and then once that doesn't get caught, because if it gets caught, then that tells them somebody's looking over my shoulder. There is some internal controls. I can't steal this way. But if that, if that test 
is successful, meaning that it is not detected, then that person knows that they have carte blanche to go ahead and do whatever they want. So to know who's working for you is critical. And in this day and age of so economical background checks, um, it is, uh, it's really crazy if people don't do that. And you, we've seen a lot of business owners that haven't. We worked a case not that long ago where a person hired somebody, I'm gonna say out of desperation, the person was extremely compelling in their interview. And within a month, the person started stealing. It was a, a medical related company. Um, and after uh, it was, and it was involving credit card transactions. And after that fraud was detected, the person was terminated. We went in there, we determined that this person over their lifetime, and the person was probably in their forties, had 24 different aliases. Had been had been convicted, 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 not not just you know caught, convicted criminally a dozen times, and it was never caught. Now, would a would a educated business person hire a person that has one conviction for a financial crime, let alone a dozen? Well, in this case, this person didn't do their homework, and as a result, got burned for four hundred thousand dollars. So as, as simple as that is, it's such a simple step. And the third one that I'm going to throw out there as, as a freebie <laughs> is, people, is people should have theft insurance. I know it sounds kind of morbid that you're going to have insurance, but you are insuring, especially for small business owners that don't have adequate internal controls, to have theft insurance really should be a must. It should be a no-brainer. And what we've seen in a lot of a lot of cases that we will ask that's one of the first questions do you have theft insurance well of course we do you know they give me their copy of their insurance policy and, and you know it's a director's and officer's policy it's an auto policy theft insurance is a separate rider it's very economical uh considering the damage that can be done and the premiums correspond to the amount of theft loss that they're going to they are going to insure uh so every company should have theft coverage, and, and it's called employee dishonesty insurance, theft coverage, there's a bunch of different names. At the end of the day, it means that you are going to be protected or be made whole as a result of the potential unlikelihood that one of your very good employees may steal from you. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's every, just about every company is under is underinsured that, that I've ever seen. So I got Usually, Go ahead. Oh, sorry, Frank. So I, well, I've got a, um, not about insurance, but I have, I have a follow-up question. Sure. Um, do you think it's a best practice to communicate to employees that are working with money in your organization upon hiring, like maybe in some type of employee orientation, about the things that that organization does for internal controls? Well, I mean, it, so it, just it, get it out right out in the open? I mean, is that something well, businesses should be doing? One of, one of the best anti-fraud uh, techniques um, that a company can implement, and we kind of refer to this as the tone at the top, um, and we kind of tie that into employee education, is that yes, you should do that because you want to instill in that person's mind that, you know, gosh, this, this company takes fraud seriously. Gosh, if I steal, something's going to happen to me. And, you know, companies do that through a bunch of different ways. One, you know, we've seen companies that would actually have you know, get all their employees together, depending on the size of the company, and talk about fraud. Uh, talk about the effects of fraud. Talk about what will happen to them. And really good companies will reinforce that with a fraud policy that they will actually make the employees sign, which stipulates that if I steal or if I'm caught stealing, 
this is what will happen to me. I'm going to be terminated. I'm going to be criminally prosecuted. I'm going to, they're going to be made whole for all theft as well as out all outside independent costs that are incurred in the prosecution. And we will cut off your leg, you know, if it's necessary, you know, in other words, you need to scare these people that if they do something, there's going to be a price to pay. Now there's going to be the hardened fraudster isn't going to care if they've got a fraud policy. They're going to evaluate your internal controls. They're going to exploit the system. But, you know, and those people you're just going to have to catch. It's the people that are the, like Kathy mentioned earlier, there's good people that do bad things. And, you know, it could be, and I don't want to say that there are good reasons to steal, but, you know, you're facing foreclosure. You've got a medical crisis. You know, you're, you know your kid needs braces. You know, whatever the economic need that a person has, the car broke down, you need a new car. You don't have the money for a new car. Um, whatever the need is, people in their mind will rationalize it. It's okay to steal and they will be a completely good person. A lot of people that commit financial crimes aren't your typical street thugs. You know, they don't have, you know, prior criminal, you know, arrests. You know, they're, they're usually first time offenders. They get caught and they learn their lesson and will never do it again. But you just think of the people that that do this only once and get caught. I mean, it, it, it can be a large number. So it is you know, very important to educate the employee. Um, and it's not just a one time deal. I mean, you think about the onboarding process of a new employee. You know, you got the employee handbook, you got the conflict of interest policy, you got all your health insurance forms. You know, now you're going to throw in a fraud policy. You're going to talk to them about fraud. Well, you do it separately. A lot of times we've seen HR do this. Uh, where, you know, that they just go ahead and reinforce this, and then you make the person sign a document that, you know, A, I've, I've participated in this, I understand this, you know, you give them some room to put on their, hey, are you aware of anything? Because roughly half of the frauds that are detected come from employee tips. If you don't ask your employee, hey, do you see anything unusual going on? I don't care how insignificant it is. If you see something, say something. Um, and, you know, you give them the opportunity to answer, maybe, you know, there may be not 99% of the time people leave that blank. And then they sign it that, A, they haven't committed any kind of frauds. They're not aware of any kind of frauds. And the document's retained in the, uh, in the personnel file. Well, the value of that is when that person does, is caught with regard to fraud, committing some sort of a financial crime, they can come back and say, oh, well, I was just borrowing it. Because that's, that's the number one response from a fraudster. I'm only borrowing it. You know, I was planning on paying it back. Of course, you're planning on paying it back up on being caught. Well, now all of a sudden it's a demand note, you know, that, you know, okay, we're calling your, your theft. You have to pay it all back now. You can just continue with your job. That doesn't work that way. But in the, their minds, that's what they're commonly, that's what their defense is. So employee education is critical. Tone at the top is critical that if you if you see the, the company owner or an executive, you know, taking their, their family to Hawaii on vacation or running personal expenditures through, well, you're sending a message to the employees, hey, that's okay for me to do. And they will emulate that. So that's the tone at the top, but, and that kind of goes hand in hand with regard to employee education, but that should really, it should start on day one. Thanks, Frank, that was, that was excellent advice. Well, and I totally agree with that because, you know, working in a bank, everything was done under dual control. and. The thought, you know, obviously the bank wants to protect its assets, but you're also protecting yourself when you're doing things under dual control. It it not only makes you think twice about doing something that might be fraudulent, but it also protects you knowing there's two two sets of eyes. If I ever get accused of something that I wasn't doing something alone, if there's money missing from somewhere, 
I was with another person when we went to count that money. I, you know, there were two of us that signed off. So it's harder to bring, you know, two people in. So having that dual control protects your employees um, as well as protects the business itself. So there's nothing wrong with having dual control, uh, having somebody looking over your shoulder um, and letting your employees know that that's how we operate for everybody's benefit. Um, and just just, th just think of a check. You know, many, many checks require dual signatures. Why is that? That's an internal control that, you know, you need, mm -hmm. you now need to bring somebody else in. And if you want to, unless you're going to, unless you're going to forge someone's name, which, you know, if you're stealing money, what's the big deal about going ahead and getting a forgery charge on top of it? You know, nonetheless, there's, are, there are some people that will try to commit a financial crime, you know, in through a disbursement scheme where instead of forging the name, they're going to go ahead and, and get that other person's signature on there. And as a result, justify to them for whatever reason that this is for. And here, I need you to sign this check. They just go ahead and sign it. Don't even look at who it's made to, what the purpose of it is. You know, I, you know, it's boom, it's done. When all of a sudden that person has, you know, facilitated that. The dual signature is the control that you now need to bring a second person in. And people that commit financial crimes typically don't like associates. You know, now all of a sudden, you you know, if, if that person knows that it's a financial crime, now that it's like they both have something on one another from a blackmail standpoint. So they like to, you know, typically a fraudster likes to run the, the scheme alone. They don't they don't like cohorts. Right. Um, I, I do want to just back up a little bit. You were talking about doing background checks. Uh, I think that's a really important thing. I, do, I How much does a typical background check cost? And is it better to have that done professionally? Or uh, some people might think, well, I could just Google them and see what I can find. But talk just a little bit more about the background check, the cost and why it's important. The, to have that the, the, the cost of a, of a background check, and, and depending... One of the issues that falls into the, the cost category of a background check is, is this person a lifer, let's just say, in the, you know, the greater Cleveland area, you know, as opposed to looking at their resume and finding out that, you know, they've lived in, they've lived in Florida, they lived in California. The more places that they've lived, the more places that you have to search, you know, court dockets uh, with regard to potential criminal activity. So, if a person is in a, a, a in one geographical market, the cost of a of a background check is much cheaper than a person that's lived in multiple locales. And a person could live in multiple locales completely legitimately. It's not like they they're stealing in one city, going into another. I mean, you can get background checks. I mean, the prices come down so much on background checks that you can get background checks anywhere from you know fifty to one hundred dollars. It's like going through a buffet line. What do you want us wow. to check? Um, we, I want you to check. I want you most importantly. I want you to. I want to find out about a criminal background. All right. Well, they're you know, they're from Cleveland. All right. Well, if they're from Cleveland, you know, maybe they worked in you know Lake County. Maybe they worked in Ashtabula County. Maybe they were, so you, you know you would do a background check. You know, within a relative reasonable circumference of the Cleveland market. Um, you're just not going to look in Cuyahoga County because that person could you know have worked outside that county and you know been arrested there. So. They're 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 so beneficial, and depending on what position that the employee has, obviously in the area of fraud and embezzlement, I'm concerned about financial crimes. Um, but then you start, you know, getting into um, red flags, identifying red flags, and you know, is this person? Uh, do they have civil cases against them? You know, are 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 they going through a divorce? The fact that someone's getting a divorce doesn't mean that they're going to steal. It just may mean that they have a financial need. Um, 
And the same thing with regard to, let's say, unpaid taxes, if they have tax liens. All right, well, gosh, this person's got money problems. If they have money problems, God, they're in charge of my books. Am I a solution for this? Not that they're going to, because most people don't steal, um, typically. You know, some people may think about it, but then, you know, the, the good angel pops up and says, okay, you really shouldn't do that, and they don't. But it's the person that has that infrequent financial need that recognizes that the system may be weak, that may go ahead and do something. And if they get caught, now you've got a track record that a prospective employer could go back on and say, all right, geez, do I really want to hire this person? And trust me, if 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 it ever does get to the, the employment interview process, that that person is going to justify to the employer that there's a reason why I did that. There's a reason why I, I, I didn't file income taxes. Uh, there's a reason that I let my CPA license expire when all these years I've been holding myself out as a CPA. I've been holding myself out as an upstanding, honest person. But then when that company did a background check, they find out that, hey, I'm not a CPA. I've done time for tax evasion, da, da, da. And now this person has to kind of like, you know, blow smoke into the interviewer's face and say, oh, there's a reason for all this. There's always a reason for everything. And we've seen cases where, you know, people that have been um, disclosed their their uh, discretions while an employee and they've had to, you know, explain why some of these things happened were in fact at the onset of employment, their background was never checked and they could have nipped that in the bud. And then, you know, at that point in time, if you know that the person has this kind of a background and you do hire them and they do steal from you, well, you have nobody to blame but yourself for hiring a person with that kind of questionable background, you know, to handle your money. So, you know, earlier we had talked about misconceptions. We've, we've been talking about a lot of those throughout this um, discussion, but is there anything else you'd want to point out as a, mis, a common misconception? There's, 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 a, there's, there's a, a bunch of misconceptions. The first of which, and, and I might even mention this, can't happen in my business. You know, you know how, many, how many times, you know, that when, when we would, have the initial consultation with a victim and usually their legal counsel that, you know, I can't believe that this happened to me. You know, you know, I run such a good business, you know, all my, all my people are good. The best one is their family, you know, and they, they think the fact that someone's family, that family have some kind of code that they would never steal from somebody. You can throw that out the window because it's crazy how many family members will steal from another family member. Um, you know, a lot of the work that we do in matrimonial cases, uh, as crazy as it sounds, a spouse can steal from the other spouse. You know, they can they can shelter a bunch of money that because, you know, maybe the marriage isn't going that well and, and they're going to be trying to squirrel away money because they know that when the marriage goes south, I have to give up half of what I've accumulated. Well, gosh, if I could shelter this and they don't know about it, you know, ha ha, I got one over. Uh, you know, we've done a lot of work with regard to, uh, you know, marital cases because People never think that a spouse would steal from another. Um, another another huge misconception is that that is is that management saying, well, everybody here is honest, you know, and especially especially if they are a, a religious person that you know is very de of devout, that they just can't fathom that somebody that works for them would steal, you know. And we've worked cases for churches, you know, where I actually got fired off of a case. Because it is a true story, um, where I went to meet with the with the church, the reverend, and I was just killing time, and I was in like the vestibule, 
and I saw these collection canisters in the in the in the the, the lobby, and I just like lifted it up, and inside there was a bunch of cash. You know, and, you know, I, you know, I put it back. I didn't take anything. I looked at the other one. There's a bunch of cash, and then this might have been a Monday. Maybe there was Sunday services. You know, and, and I mentioned to the Reverend, like, geez, this is a little, let me give you a freebie right off the bat. You just can't leave this cash sitting in there, front door wide open. Anybody could come in here, you know, and, you know, tap into that and take it. And I realized that you may say, well, if they needed it, I'm okay taking it. But when I insinuated that people steal, that guy ended the interview and I didn't get the job. But I was there as a fraud examiner that, you know, you're giving people the opportunity and I do this for a living. If I if I didn't if I didn't perform fraud examinations and, and chase after people that lie, cheat, and steal, I'd be doing income taxes and financial statements. I'm not because people do this, and and it doesn't matter what organization you are. It could be a government, it could be a church, it could be a business, it could be a mom and pops, or it doesn't matter. Fraud knows no boundaries, and you know to, to you know to have a you know a priest tell me that you know get the heck out of here. You know people don't steal. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> so but, but you know you know they're they're very trusting. You know another another common misconception is that crime does not pay. You know and you know if you commit the crime, you're going to do the time. Well, you know if you looked at statistics and what happens to people when they commit a financial crime, they're pretty sobering. Uh, the, the largest case that I worked with seven million dollars of embezzlement. And in the fraud presentations that I give, I always ask the attendees, hey, how much how much time do you think a person would get for stealing seven million dollars? And the answer, you know, the answers go all over the board. Life, death penalty, you know, nothing, da-da-da. But in that case, a person got one year. You know, and it's like, oh my God, you kidding me? A person sold seven million dollars and they got one year of prison. Well, it was actually one year and one day, they actually did seven months. Um, and that just flabbergasts people that. For committing a crime of that nature, the punishment is not that steep. And a lot of times for first-time offenders, you know, embezzlement's a nonviolent crime. You know, would you rather have that cell taken up by someone that's a, a violent criminal, a drug dealer, a rapist, a robber, or would you have this poor guy in there or a woman that wrote checks to herself? You know, so a lot of the, lot, lot of the times that the, you know, courts go relatively easy on a white-collar criminal, at least the first time. Um, than they would for, you know, for someone else. So I'm not going to say crime does pay. It's just that it's a misconception that, oh my gosh, if you're going to, if you're going to steal money uh, other than robbing a bank uh, in a nonviolent manner, you know, man, you're going to get, you're going to get thrown in prison for a long time. Eh, I don't know about that. And, and you'll, you'll see case after case in the paper and, and you'll, with high profile cases, you'll see a prosecutor that, that will want to go after a person that has stolen money, say, from a governmental entity or a not-for-profit entity, you might not see the same response with regard to a business entity. Remember, only half the cases go criminal anyways. So we're getting short here on time, um, but just so one, one last question. Is there anything on the horizon that small businesses need to be paying attention to? I, I think with regard to the 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 whole global pandemic and and really the the change in the work environment, the dramatic change in work environment that a lot of businesses have seen in the past, you know, 15, 16 months as a result of the you know, the COVID, is that now you're you've seen some companies have reduced accounting staff. If you reduced accounting staff, chances are you're reducing internal controls. We talked about that earlier. How important that is. Uh, 
the another issue with regard to the remote employees that if they're working remotely, chances are many of the transactions that are being facilitated are electronic transactions. So there should be a heightened awareness with regard to looking scrutinizing that bank statement. What where's the where's the money going electronically? And if you're a business owner, you know, you want to probably you don't want to ask the employee, you want to ask the financial institution, can I get some backup on this? If you ask that to the employee, chances are they could fabricate a, a document that could be convincing that will make you think that the transaction is legitimate. Whereas if you if you requested that document from the bank, it's going to be a completely different document that's going to tell you something that you might not want to hear. So, you know, have the have the radar up with regard to uh, electronic activity um, as a result of the changed work environment. Now, coming into June, you're going to be seeing, you know, more and more companies get back to full strength, get back to how things are, and then you're going to get back to, you know, traditional internal controls, segregation of duties, required vacations. Uh, people just have to, to, to be mindful of the one person office that has control over everything that uh, if, if that's if that's the case that they have the business owner has to get more involved it, it's as simple as that hey thanks so much for being with us today frank you know your insight is certainly going to help listeners as they look to protect their businesses against these various fraud schemes that you've talked to us about today um you shared a lot of great information and i know that well i know we could probably talk about this all day given your experience and the cases you've worked on um if listeners want more you know is there a, a resource or a website that you would recommend to people i mean like are there resources on markham's website or i know you also sent us a um a booklet um, is that something that we could share with our listeners on our um, our podcast website? I mean, anybody that that would want a copy of uh, a ebook that I compiled with regard to fraud prevention measures, you know, sure, be you know, be happy to to share that with uh, anybody that would request a copy. Okay, perfect. Yeah, thanks, Frank. I I know I could talk about this for a lot longer. Um, the stories themselves are fascinating, um, but we're going to add everything um, you talked about, hopefully to show notes. We'll we'll get some sort of mechanism up where people can request that book. Um, and I just want to say thank you again for being here. This podcast thank you for having me. is made. Oh, you're welcome. Maybe maybe down the road we can do another one. Maybe there'll be a new topic we can come up with because I I could That'd certainly be, that would be great. Do this again. Um, it's 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 fascinating information. It's fascinating stuff, but it's it's also scary. And as um, you know, someone who's seen a lot of businesses just taken under by somebody who who had some sort of scheme against them, it's a very um, it's a very serious topic as well, though. So it's wrecked families. Yeah. It's wrecked companies. I mean, it's exactly. It's, I don't say that it's it's not a victimless crime. Correct. Um, this podcast was made possible by the Ohio Small Business Development Center and Lakeland Community College. Stay up to date with the latest podcast episodes by signing up today at bizchatohio.com to receive our latest shows and premium content and have them delivered right into your inbox. And again, visit bizchatohio.com for the latest blogs and freebie content. And we would be honored if you would subscribe to this podcast. If you have a business question or would like to request an amazing guest or a, a business topic that we haven't covered, please send me an email at cwalsh at lakelandcc.edu. And if you'd like to learn more about the SBDC at Lakeland, 
please visit our website at lakelandcc.edu forward slash SBDC. Our center offers no cost business advising in areas of business planning, access to capital, loan packaging, marketing, and a host of other topics. We'd love to hear from you. If you're joining us from outside the Northeast Ohio region, you can also visit americasbdc.org to find a center close to you. So thanks for listening um, and join us next time for another great episode of Biz Chat Ohio.